Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Well, today on our show, I'm very happy to um, introduce uh, Fred, Colonel Fred Troutman, who will be talking to us about a father's grief living with loss and change. Fred is a Ph.D. and faculty member at Walla Walla College, and he will share with us how he learned to cope with life following the death of his 17-year-old son, Jonathan. Jonathan's death has spread, uh, spurred Fred on to conduct bereavement research on the experience of fathers following the death of a child. And Fred's going to give us tips and insights today on what bereavement entails, and we'll discuss why some people cope better than others. Fred, welcome to the show. Thank you, Gloria. It's good to be with you. It's great to have you on. Now, you're in Walla Walla, Washington? I'm in Portland, Oregon. Oh, you're in Portland, Oregon. Oh, that's where Walla Walla College is. Well, we have an extended campus here. Oh, I see. Great. Now, tell us a little bit about your research and about your son and your family, and again, how did you get involved in this research? Oh, oh, long, long story. story. Um, what, what can I can say, I say first? first? Um, uh, I, was I was a single parent, parent with two sons. I had been with them for about a year, just the three of us. Um, I was also uh, teaching and had a very active Air Force career. Uh, one weekend, I was up at the base, and in the middle of the night, got a phone call from my older son, whose name is James, and said to me, Dad, John's been killed in a car wreck. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the first thing I needed to do as a as a nurse and a health care provider was to make sure that he had his information straight. And, unfortunately, he did. Mm-hmm. Um, probably the most difficult part at that time was the fact that he was home alone and he received a phone call from the coroner. And I was in Tacoma, Washington, and so I wasn't able to get home until the next morning. But, of course, I got friends there and all. Uh-huh. So I think one of the things that happened at that point was I got off the plane and I took him by the shoulders and I said, I don't know what happened here last night, but I know that Jonathan, Jonathan made some bad choices that we're going to have to live with. And um, at that point he went home and slept like 12 hours. He had had a really bad night. So that's so, the basic story. Yeah, uh, yes. And and so from that you went on to thinking about dads and loss and... Well, for the first year, um, being a health care provider and knowing about Cuba Ross, I knew that I could take care of myself. I remember myself being in the field, too, that I just you kind of watch yourself do it. Oh, yes, absolutely. You know, I'd, I'd come to work and I would be depressed or angry or something, and Cuba Ross was so helpful and it was like, oh, yeah, I know exactly what I'm feeling, but what do I do about it? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until a bit later that I really thought about Kubler's work, and Kubler's work, Kubler Ross's work was with, with people who were dying. Right. And she set the groundwork, and she really did not talk so much about people who lived through a death experience or how you manage it. She just identified it. She did wonderful work. And it was a whole year before I actually reached out to other people. You know, Jonathan died the 21st of November, uh, 1987, and it was just before the holidays, and it was years before I could listen to holiday music. I always did my Christmas shopping the day after Christmas because there was no music. 
Yeah, and I couldn't yeah. stand the music. It was really hard. Right. And here we are in this time of year again. Yeah, we are. Coming up with a show. So I think one of the things you're going to be able to help our listeners, too, with is some of those tips on how you did it. Well, you know, like shopping the, after and... Yeah, one, one of the things that's um, so nice now is that I celebrate Jonathan as opposed to live in, his, live in the experience of his death. Right, and right. And that's made a big difference for me. Yeah, which doesn't happen for a while, right? It doesn't. It doesn't yeah. for quite a while. Yeah, first years are difficult. I think so, probably um, getting me back into the Christmas or the idea of holidays, the grandchildren had a lot to do with that. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things I always like to remind people to remember is Christmas is just one day, believe it or not. I, and I agree with you. Um, but there's a lot leading up to it. Absolutely. Um, and it's very it's easy to learn to um, do other things that are meaningful, such as memorials or special things that you do. In fact, coming up this Sunday is one, uh, one of the memorial things that I think is very, very important and I do all the time. And that's the uh, candle lighting. I believe it's the ninth annual international candle lighting that says light a candle wherever you are at 7 p.m. in memory of a child. Yes, all over the world at 7 p.m. All over the world. And also you can go on the Internet to the Compassionate Friends website and you can log in a comment about your child. Mm-hmm. So it's a wonderful thing that's going on now and a, and a great way to honor your child. Well, let's talk a little bit about you did your a dissertation I on did my loss. On, on loss and change. Mm-hmm. And, and um, what I, you asked? Uh, did you ask questions, or did you have an hypothesis? It was about fathers, right? Well, first of all, um, I really didn't want to do that sort of a dissertation. I'd had enough of grief, and I got to my doctoral studies and found that there were a group of people who were dealing with major loss and change issues. And I, um, we formed a little group and sort of did some talking. And I finally threw my hands up and said. This is what I need to do. And I was I looked at it and said, you know, there's been a lot written about bereavement and, and there's a lot going on. What happens to people further down the road? How do they manage long term and how does the death of a child affect their lives? And so I um, started out thinking that I wanted to do work with families. And then the more that I looked at it, I realized that most of the work that's been done has been done with mothers and usually mothers who have lost a child early in their life, young children or prenatal deaths. Um, so I then started looking more at what the information that was out there about fathers and found out there was basically nothing. And there's probably a very good reason for that, and that's basically men don't like to talk about it. Uh, now tell me, uh, how long it had been since Jonathan died when you're at this point where you're thinking oh, about this? very good question. Um, I have to stop and think about this. Probably about eight years. Okay. Which is something um, so to say to our listeners. You're down the road a little bit before you start thinking a little more abstractly about it, right? Absolutely. Um, I, I think that was a very important part of it. In fact, another very important part was it became really an important issue for me to tell these men's stories and not have it reflect my own story. So I listened very carefully to what they were saying about their experience and not read, in, read into what they were saying what had happened to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was a very important part. So you asked about a hypothesis. Um, basically, what I, I, the research question that I used was, what story do fathers tell about their lived experience following the death of a child? Oh, how interesting. So you did a qualitative. I did a qualitative uh, study. Qualitative study. Mm-hmm. Um, and my committee thought that I should probably interview about 12. 
I interviewed 16 men. Um, I couldn't say no when people wanted to participate. <laughs> Which is a lot for a qualitative study. A lot, a huge number. That's a lot of information. <laughs> um, and I also set a requirement that they had to be at least five years bereaved before they could be part of the study. Two of the men really wanted to participate, and they were at four and a half years, so I did include them. Mm-hmm. So, What are some of the things that you found out from your research? Actually, before I go there, I'd like to just tell you a little story, and that okay. has to do with that has to do with me and what this research meant. When Jonathan first died, um, of course, I was in despair and I was hopeless, and I I just saw my world crumble. Everything that was familiar to me was suddenly unfamiliar, and I'm sure anyone who's lost a child understands that comment. Um, and the pain was terrific. I was fatigued. I was burning up so much energy just trying to survive. You know, you do the things like you drive past your freeway exit and not even realize it till you're maybe two more down the road. Exactly. And then you don't know where you are. And then you don't know where you are. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'm thinking, you know, I'm going crazy. I, I would scan the obits in case somebody died, and and I didn't know about it. And I thought, what well, this is really be, uh, bad behavior. So after a year, um, I contacted a compassionate friends group um, not wanting to do that, but I did it, and then I also got involved in a small group that met at a hospice house. Just for just for our listeners, in case they are not uh, familiar with Compassionate Friends, we do have, I think, a spot on the show about it, but it, it was a group that you went to of people who had had children die, right? Yes, yes, and I was concerned that it would be people sitting around crying about their loss, sort of like some of the things I'd heard about people who were overweight going commiserate about how how overweight they are. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that I didn't see how it would be helpful, but what I found was a group of really kind and understanding friends who knew what I was experiencing. And what I learned was I wasn't doing anything too unusual. It was pretty common with the things that I was experiencing. Right, because you do feel like you're a little crazy. Oh, yes, you do. Um, and I also looked around and began to see people who had lived through the death of a child, and I saw that some of them sort of moved into that, and that's where they stayed. And other people got somewhat better and were able to continue on with their lives. And then there were people who took their experience and really made it part of their life and something really important that's happened to them that they were able to share with others. Mm -hmm. And I said, I want to be like those people. So getting into my research, that was one of the things that was always in the back of my mind is what is it that happens to some people that they're able to thrive and and bounce back from a bad experience. Right, and why do some get stuck? And why do some get stuck? Mm -hmm. Um, And so in interviewing these men or or deciding to do this research, I thought, well, I'm interested in why people are able, how people are able to manage long term. Um, So I looked at the five-year thing, and what I did was put the word out that I was doing this research and hoped that some man would be brave enough to talk (laughs) to me because I think we're notoriously... Um, quiet about our grief experience. Private. Um, and I think, and I, and what happened was, um, I, people started coming to me and then they started referring their friends and so I ended up with way more than the 12 that I was supposed to and ended up with 16. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so I did two things. The first thing I did was send out just basic information which, which asked them, um, if they fit into my categories and also asked them if they had sought counseling. I wanted to make it. I wanted to identify those people who. If, if they look different. If so they, yeah. what did you find? Some of the differences. Um, basically, none of the men had sought counseling. Ah. Um, some of them went to one or two sessions. 
a couple of the men told me, well, I was actually my own counselor. I went and did the reading, and I had a good friend that I talked to. Um, and oh, another of the men said that he found a couple other bereaved guys, and they got together for breakfast once a month. Mm-hmm. Um, and so formal counseling was not was not a big issue. Uh, there was very little of that done. Mm-hmm. One of the things we've talked about in the show is if you do get uh, formal counseling, it's kind of tough because you've got to find somebody who uh, has probably been through it. And I think that's true. Maybe occasionally you'll find someone who, who has that understanding. I think that the most important thing with getting counseling is that you have a good match with that person. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably the single most important thing, that you're able to talk to them and they seem to understand what you're and be able to give you some support. Right, and you can tell them your story. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I agree with you that almost almost always it's someone who has had that experience. And themselves. it doesn't. Maybe it's another yeah. loss, but they have to be pretty familiar with. That's loss. correct. And you know, that's one thing I got myself into trouble with with compassionate friends. I think when we're bereaved, we sometimes feel like no one understands but us. Mm-hmm. And the more that I looked at it, the more I realized that bereavement is a whole like a lot like the other losses and change we experience in our lives only to the most extreme degree. Mm-hmm. And so if you if you lose a major job or something, you go through many of the same things that a brief person does. Absolutely. It's a form of yeah. bereavement. And that's one of the things that uh, I'm planning on doing with the show in the future is moving in a little bit into all bereavement because, uh-huh. because there is a lot of other bereavement. Now, so how did you find, uh, why do some people grow from the experience and some not? What's your mm-hmm. guess on that? Um, I listened to what the men told me and tried to, identify in their stories and it had a lot it has a lot to do with several things one of them is their own life experience with loss mm-hmm. yeah looking at the background how they dealt yeah. in the past how how or how did you deal with a loss uh, other losses or what's your family like when something bad happens so i think the most of it has to do with the way a person perceives themselves inside mm-hmm. uh whether whether they are able to meet crises and move on or whether crises control people Mm-hmm. Now, did you did you feel like that the families that were open and talked about it were key, or the or the stiff upper lip families are fine too? It doesn't matter. It's just that they have a pattern, or what well, do you figure? What I what I have to say about that is, <clears throat> excuse me, um, the peop- the men came to me so that they represent a very specific group who who were out there willing. Some people. Um, some of the men were eager to talk. They, one man told me, I've never said, it's been 20 years and I've never said this to anyone, um, not even his wife. And others, um, others had talked to other people, but for some people they were extremely eager to share their story. But it took a number of years for them to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. So time is a very important element in a man's bereavement, I think. Um, that most men, come at bereavement with a sense of needing to support the people around them? Yes, that's interesting because when I go to Compassionate Friends and we'll have our national conference again in July, it's a fabulous conference, I believe it's uh, 15th, 16th, and 17th, and I'll do a workshop, I know you do some workshops too, Fred, with Mm -hmm. men, and I'll do a workshop, and one of the things I notice when I do a workshop maybe on anger or in crying or whatever is that the poor men with their newly bereaved wives are so sad to sit and look at their wives crying. Absolutely. I just notice that constantly. Mm-hmm. They've got their arm around them. They're trying to support them. And they are so sad. It, they not only have the loss of their child, but their partner. They seem to feel some responsibility to be strong for them. Mm-hmm. Well, a man's role is taking care of his family. 
And when you lose a child, I think for me at least, it was the first time in my life I was totally helpless. There was absolutely nothing I could do. There was nothing to fix. There was nothing to mend. And I heard that repeated by the majority of the men that I worked with. Um, you're, you're at a loss perhaps for the first time in your life. There's absolutely nothing you can do about it. And so this helping of other people um, is the only thing that you can do to kind of get through. So you have to be strong to get the other people through it. Mm-hmm. And that came up time and time again. And then right. later on they, they start dealing with it in well, a different way. Know, or t- then, then what happens is other people are moving on and doing different things. Mm-hmm. and then the man really has nobody to talk to because it's passed for everybody else. And so he's been quiet and reserved uh, generally, mm-hmm. um, and the outcome is then that when he's ready to talk about it, nobody else is, and they think that he's taken care of himself. Mm-hmm. They think he's fine and yeah. going on. Yeah, and so it ta- it's taken many years for people to, or uh, men to come back and be willing to talk about the bereavement. Mm-hmm. And what a great thing for you to have some kind of a forum for them to do that. And it, it was I after I had done that I thought man I should really form a group and get these men together so they can talk to each other because they had such great stories of strength and ability to move ahead in the face of adversity. Now did you see a lot of anger with the men or any anger or is it beyond that or do you have any thoughts about anger with men and grief? You know, I, I, early on I was very angry. I I was so mean to an insurance agent. He wanted some stupid information. And all of my anger just was vented on that poor man. Overall, I would say that the men that I interviewed were far enough along that anger was the part of it. I can I think of one man in particular who uh, whose wife had died quite a few years before, and he felt that it was very unfair. And so when he lost his son, um, all of that compounded anger from the death of his wife plus the death of his son um, was almost more than he could bear. Uh-huh. That was one example of somebody who carried a lot of anger. <clears throat> Most of the men had pretty well worked through that part. Uh-huh. But if if you do have anger, I think one of the the things that you can do is find people to tell your story to. I think that's an excellent idea. Excellent idea. You know, there's a saying out there, and you may have discussed this on the program, I don't know, that when we lose our parents, we lose our history. Mm-hmm. When we lose our spouses, we lose our present. And when we lose our children, we lose our futures. And it's very easy to be angry about the losses. You know, I don't know what his what Jonathan's life would have been. And this is, most of the men repeated this too. Um, I don't know what his children would have been like or if there would have been more children. Um, and so I felt really cheated for a lot of things that were important to me. This is from a Dan in Detroit, Michigan. And Dan says, my 17-year-old son was killed in an automobile accident five years ago. At the time, my daughter was 14. Mm-hmm. I know I wasn't available for Jean after her brother's death. Jean is now 19, and I feel that we don't have as close a relationship as I would like. Do you have any thoughts on how I can make it up to her? Oh, well, then, that breaks my heart, how you can Mm -hmm. make it up to her right there. (laughs) Right there, you got me. Have you got any thoughts for um, Dan, Fred? Well, I think that was probably the most difficult thing for me post-Jonathan dying was that my 19-year-old, James uh, and I became very, very distant. He was young. He wanted to move ahead. He didn't understand how difficult this was for me. I didn't understand how how much he wanted to just put this behind him and go on with life. He said to me at one point, just because Jonathan died doesn't mean you're going to run my life. 
<laughs> and we went through a very, very difficult few years. Very difficult. Um, happy to say he's now the father of three of, of my three grandchildren. A great dad and a, a really nice person to be around. So we got through it to some degree. Um, I think we still have some things to work on. Mm-hmm. But I think time is probably the best thing. Um, I think that I would say the most important thing is for your daughter, let you know that let her know that you love her, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and that a bad thing happened, and there's not much more you can do with that. Uh, my daughter actually was on the show. She uh, teaches at Columbia and is involved in sibling loss. And uh, she made a comment on the show. Someone called in with something kind of similar. And she said, you know what, um, I think that if you went up to her and told her that you felt like that maybe you hadn't been there for her as much as you'd wanted to when um, your, let's see, your 16-year-old son, when your son was killed that just going up to her and stating that fact could be very helpful. I agree with that. I think that's an excellent idea. Yeah, because uh, it's very tough. You, you know, just your email is touching. You might tell her, tell her to listen to the show or um, or maybe just tell her the email you send in. I mean, if uh, people know that, you know, you're hurting about it and, and have this realization. I, I know I didn't. I wasn't really available for my kids uh as much as I would have liked to have been. You're trying to make it, right? Mm-hmm. Right, Fred? I mean, every day is a struggle. One of my one of the men said to me, I just felt like I really made an accomplishment when I got out of bed and got my shoes on and made it to work, and a good day, even my socks even matched. You know? <laughs> and that's probably about it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So how do you think uh, a, men's, a man's grief changes over time? I think that uh, one of the things, or some of the things that they told me uh, was, or were that um, the meaning of their life changed. Mm-hmm. Um, I th- a lot of men, when they lose children, are fairly young, and so they maybe see life um, in a fairly optimistic way. And um, with time, you begin to put things in a better perspective. But what it does is, uh, what most of them told me was, it made them more sensitive to other people and more concerned about the relationships. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, some people say to me, and I felt somewhat that it, it, there was then and then there's now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of, it's a real demarcation. Well, for me, I just kept waiting for life to, quote, get back to normal. Mm-hmm. And one day I realized, you know, it will never be as it was. Um, and normal has to be different than it used to be. And at that point, I began then to build in a, a much more positive frame than I had before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, that's interesting, and the and the men. Uh, well, how do you think work plays into this? Well, uh, you know, in this day and age, obviously a lot of women are working too. But yeah. say we just had the old stereotype: man working, woman staying home, um, and and he is the primary uh, uh, breadwinner or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, talk a little bit about that. Work for most of these guys was a great escape. You could go to work; you didn't have to deal with it. But when you came home, then there was a family and there were all the things that reminded you of what you had lost. So after the initial grief, after the first few months, um, work became a great way to get away from your thoughts. You have, you were busy. You didn't have to think about it. So it was a great escape. Mm-hmm. And most women, even though they work, still carry the home with them at home, at work. So that work really wasn't the escape for for, the, for women that I've talked to that, that it became for the men. Because mm-hmm. they're on the phone saying, yeah, how are they going to get picked up and I know right. they're sad. And, sure. You know. <laughs> yes. And, you know, that brings up one thing that I think is really important um, is that people grieve differently. 
Absolutely. And in general, women need to process information and share information. That's a big generalization. But if you look at the way people are bereaved, that they're a group of people, and they're primarily women, who need that social contact and that bouncing off of ideas. They're the other group of people, which are primarily men, who do it internally. Mm-hmm. Um, and they and I think the research shows that they experience it differently too. That the experience of grief is something to be for for the um, thinkers and the internal people. It's something to be dealt with and conquered and um, made sense of in some way. <clears throat> and for the more uh, out outgoing uh, people who speak about things, it needs to be talked about. And you come to understanding through sharing it with others. So that there are two very different ways of doing it. And most often, men do it one way and women do it the other. So you're almost immediately then set up for some sort of difficulty in working through your grief as a couple. Mm-hmm. I know my husband uh, did a lot of photo albums, cutting things out, rec- you know, having things recorded, organizing you know, uh, very internal about it, looking at things. And, and that, for me, was very painful. Yeah. I mean, I didn't want to look at the pictures. You know, he'd yeah. say, wow, I just did this photo album, and I really didn't want to look at it. So he didn't exactly understand, mm-hmm. you know, that I wasn't interested that he had the funeral service transcribed. You know? <laughs> well, and uh, working in the woodshop, doing something physically active tends to be a really important thing for um, that type of a griever to, a griever to do, mm-hmm. is being physically active in some way, um, working in the wood shop, chopping wood, going for a bicycle ride, all of those things are really important. All right. Uh, but one of the things that you were just talking about is I think for everyone telling their story is so important. And the, you gave these guys a chance later on to tell their story. Yes. At, you know, at some point, I, I, I had wondered, does it become less important to tell your story? Oh, they were eager to tell their story. Mm-hmm. They were eager to tell me about their child and what they had experienced. And there's so and few people been. who are interested in hearing that story 10 years later or That's 8 years true. later or 5 years later. There aren't a lot of people that are interested in the details of your story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a story without the person that you're telling it to saying, wow, you know, and then what happened? And, mm-hmm. you know, how was that for you? And, you know, you need that that interplay in order to have, to tell a really good story. One of the things that I found is that in men's language, there is not a good way to describe what happened to them. Ah. So that the language, there is not a language of bereavement for men like there is as much for women. Um, and so when, to tell their story, there was a great difficulty in finding the words to express what they were feeling. Now what now what kind of words would they be? Just saying uh, I, I was really hurt, I was really angry, talking about emotion, uh, yeah. I was really e- crying. They don't emotion. Those. Also, how they describe themselves after a child has died. What are you? Um, you know, and and what do you you know what do you you call a child without a parent, an orphan? But what do you call a parent without a child? Right. And so they really didn't know where they fit anymore in quite the same way. But there was a lot more than that. The language was much more subtle. It was how do I tell you what's going on in my head? Um, mm. that there isn't a good vocabulary for that, particularly among men. Mm-hmm. Mm. Those, those feelings of going crazy, but mm-hmm. describing what they are, or was, feeling was very totally sad, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, I've got another email that I'd like to share with you. It's from an Arthur in Palm Springs, and he says, uh, "My daughter died in an accident last year. She was with a babysitter and choked on a grape. I am worried about my wife." Um, I lose myself in work, but she cries so much I can hardly stand to come home. Do you have any suggestions? Mm-hmm. So it's last year. It's it's pretty early, Arthur. It's still new, isn't it? 
Yeah, and and such a shock. And you, you know, know and I think one thing I would say about that is we're really unkind to ourselves. We expect, and society expects us to get quotes get well in six months. And I think it takes the mind a lot longer, much much longer than that, to put it together in a way that's meaningful to you. So a year, the way I look at it, is a very short period of time. Absolutely. Yeah. Very short. Yeah. And uh, and you know. It, the contact that you have with with these people is important. You know, if they lived away from home or they're at college or whatever. Mm-hmm. But this little baby, you know, being mm-hmm. there, healthy at one moment and the next moment uh, dying is is a huge shock, particularly mm-hmm. to a mother who is with that baby, and having the baby with a babysitter too can what? be a lot of guilt involved with that. He doesn't say if his wife works or if she's at home. No, he just says. Uh, he can't stand to come home, so mm-hmm. he doesn't say that she works. So, mm-hmm. But I would say to you, Arthur, um, you might want to try. In fact, I would say more. You should look up a, the Compassionate Friends. Absolutely. And, and this could be a place you and your wife could go together, and she could get with some criers, and you could get with some people who could talk to you about. You, you know, know, I learned. I found, a, I found a very interesting thing in Compassionate Friends is that very often men come to Compassionate Friends for the very reason he's talking about, Things are painful at home. He doesn't know what to do with it. He doesn't want to go, but for her sake, he goes. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems then that what happens in the long term is that oftentimes women get their needs more, get satisfied about the time men are getting revved up and really into it. And so they continue to come for a much longer time, first of all, to support her, and then secondly, because he likes going. Right, and there are certain things that you can do there, too. You can be helpful, and you can do little tasks, and if you're a person who needs to do things, you can. I'd like to add a comment about the Compassionate Friends, and that is um, once you've been there and received what you need from the Compassionate Friends, that can be ongoing, but also there's always a need for people to help. It's a self-help group, and in the leadership area, even if it's folding the newsletter and helping, there are many things you can do to help. Um, and if it's not as meaningful to you um, meeting-wise, it can be very meaningful you, uh, to you as a way to help other people. Mm-hmm. And, and you were saying that that's something men like to do. And that's active. often the case, sure, often the case that there are things that they can do, that men can do to be really helpful. Yeah, and if you go on to the compassionatefriends.org, uh, right, we, I said com last time, I think they have both sites covered, but if you go on to that site, um, you can uh, find out about groups in your area. Um, you can actually, if you've been, I think, uh, three years uh, since the death of your child, you can actually form your own group in your area, mm-hmm. which is a fabulous, rewarding thing for people to do. And, um, and, and they have leadership training programs, and it's uh, really a wonderful thing. Another, another comment I would like to make is about relationships when you've had a child die. Mm-hmm. Um, I found, and I think most of the people found, that there were there were new friends who emerged that you didn't have any clue were out there, and there were people who sort of dropped away, mm-hmm. um, and partly because they can't they can't um, they don't know what to do with you. Uh, when Jonathan died, I felt um, very isolated because most of my friends were friends. We all had children the same age, and I represented in some sense what could happen to them. One of somebody said to me once you've lived every parent's worst nightmare. And so there were many people that I really didn't have much in common with. And so this this change of relationships was a difficult thing to deal with. And it also happens within a marriage, and that is um, I think that there are many things that the death of a child will strengthen in a marriage. My wife and I were separated at the time, 
but we worked very closely through our bereavement or through through the funeral and getting the work done. Um, and I think that, to me, that was a very important thing to do. Um, and I know you've talked about this on your program, that there's a sense out there that the divorce rate is very high among people who have had a child die, and it's less than 12%, right? Right. That's yeah, what they found through the groups that they've studied. Yeah. Um, and if you go to the Compassion Friends website, that study is on the website. Absolutely. So I, I just know that I think that's a fear that a lot of the men expressed to me was I was so afraid my marriage would fail, and I didn't know what to do to hold it together. Right, and you don't feel you're not really that available to your partner at that time. You're in such grief. You that's decide, true. And you don't want another loss. Yeah, the last thing you need is another loss, so you immerse yourself in work, and then what happens at home? Falls apart, perhaps. Yeah. Perhaps. Yeah. Or, Except, or you just, uh, you just well, uh, as I said, sometimes you're like strangers walking in the night, but it yes. doesn't, in most cases, that would mean that you were on the verge of divorce. Well, with a loss, it sometimes just means you're both trying to survive and you'll mm-hmm. get back. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, I think, very encouraging to know that the divorce rate is actually lower than the national population. And I think what, when people ask that question, I'll often say, I think if there's a difficult point in your marriage, that it will be accentuated when a child dies. But overall, families survive the death of a child. Absolutely. Well, mine has. And did you get back together? With, or did I did you, not. You ended did up. Did not. But it wasn't as a result of your time. But not as you a result. already no. separated, right. which, which we find sometimes also. Yes, yeah. Now, did you say you have, have uh, some, a poem or something and a story you'd like to give? A me? little short story. A few years right. ago, I went to an international gathering of the Compassionate Friends in England. And the Countess Mountbatten is the patron uh, for the Compassionate Friends in England. <clears throat> A few years before, her father, her mother-in-law, a child, uh, two children, one of hers and then another child, were killed in a boating accident that was terrorist-instigated. And she said she went through a very difficult time. Um, And the one thing that really helped her, and I thought about this with the candle lighting coming up, is someone sent her this Chinese poem that sort of became her motto for a period of time. It goes, he took a big candle and went into another room I cannot find. But I know he was here because of all the happiness he left behind. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, Fred, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. It's been absolutely fantastic having you here, and I love the fact that you're talking about a father's grief and that you have had people uh, tell their stories. And um, Is your information published anywhere, or do you have a website, or is there any way that people can get a hold of it? If- um, I would just say that if you wish to contact me, use my email address, um, What's the best? Just give it to them over the sure. line. Okay. Uh, it's a combination of my first and last name. Uh, T is in Tom, R-O-U-F-R, at www.edu. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com. 